My name is Jacob Armstrong, and I'm one of the pastors here, and just excited to be with you on this weekend after Thanksgiving as we step into a new season, as Mark has told us, uh, beginning our first week of Advent, which is just a, a season of getting ready for Christmas and getting ready for what Jesus is going to do when he comes into the world. I want to make sure that you know about our Christmas services that are coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, we hope that all of you will plan to attend and I invite you to bring your families that may be visiting, invite your neighbors. It's a great time to invite someone to church for the first time. So we'll have two services on Monday, December 23rd, and then four on Christmas Eve, Tuesday, December 24th. And so uh, take a look at those. I want to offer a special invitation to those of you who are regular attenders here and covenant members to consider coming to uh, the two services on the 23rd or even that one at 1 o'clock on the 24th. And that's just in the spirit of trying to make room for all the people that we expect to come uh, that day. Last year, we had over 4,000 people that came to our Christmas services, and we offered the same invitation. We had two services on the day before. Christmas Eve, and about 1,600 of you guys showed up. So I just thank you for that and just offer that to you again. Um, you can come to any of the services. So it's like we won't stop you at the door or anything or you know, check your ID or anything like that. So come to the one that works best for you and your family. But I, for those of you who are able, uh, consider coming to one of those earlier times uh, to make room. It's going to be a great time. All six services are the same, the candlelight uh, communion services. Uh, one of the things I get most excited about for Christmas Eve is our offering. The offering that uh, you guys give, that we give on that day, is always our biggest of the year, and we give it away. 100% of the offerings that come in on those six services with our largest crowd, uh, we will we'll give away. And I'm excited today to tell you what will be, uh, where that will be going, and we'll tell you more about it over the next few weeks. What I'm hoping is that you'll begin to pray about giving a sacrificial gift on uh, December the 23rd or December the 21st. So. 24th. So the first uh, place we're going to be giving to that offering is to our friends in Nicaragua through an organization called El Porvenir that he helps bring clean, safe drinking water to rural Nicaraguans. We've done this in several other communities, but we just learned of a new community called San Martin, which has 278 people, 73 families live in San Martin. Uh, dozens and dozens of children. And in this place, for generations, they've never had access to a clean, safe drinking water source, which means that the girls of the community, the women of the community, spend almost their whole lives carrying water in buckets. They don't get to go to school. They don't get many of the other opportunities. There are illnesses that would be normal kind of illnesses that we would have that people die from, die from because they don't have access to clean water. Children that may have diarrhea can die from that because of the, the water conditions. And so what we're hoping to do is to bring clean, safe drinking water to all 278 people in San Martin. We'll run, a, a well will be dug, water will be run to every house. Uh, we'll have, every home will have a fuel-efficient stove. A latrine will be built because there's lots of sanitation things that are taken into account. There'll be two washing stations in the village for clothes to be washed and a hand washing station at the school. There's a school in this uh, community. It'll be $60,000 uh, to do that full transformation, probably over a couple of years. Many of you will be going and being a part of that. And so pray for the people of San Martin and pray for how you can give on Christmas Eve. The other place that our money will go from that service is to something that's really the culmination of a dream of Providence Church for a decade. And you've heard me talk about it just here recently, that we want to see everyone fed, right? You saw the video, everyone fed, everyone free from addiction, everyone safe from violence, abuse, uh, child abuse, domestic violence, and to see everyone ready. And that's about seeing every student in our schools by the time they're 18 graduate from high school and be ready for God's dream for their life. 
We have uh, been working. This isn't just a Providence church thing. There's 40 or 50 churches across our county. We call ourselves Everyone's Wilson because we want to see this done for everyone, no matter who they are. And uh, our first initiative will be called Ready, Preparing Students for a Great Future. What this is, is our dream over the next three to four years is to see every public school in Wilson County have a church partner, a church that comes right alongside of them and says, we are with you in this. A, a group of people in a church who would be trained and ready to tutor kids, read to students, make sure that nobody's hungry, make sure students whose parents are addicted to drugs have someone come alongside of them, make sure students who are in a place of abuse and violence can get out of that and get free. The church, picture this, coming alongside the school. It's all approved by the director of schools. We're not breaking any laws. This is live streaming. I know everything's good because we're not going there to proselytize the kids, okay? We're going there to make sure their bellies are full, that their parents can be free from addiction. And in doing so, when the church leaves this place for one hour a week and goes out there, the gospel gets spread. Trust me, the the gospel gets spread. Jesus said when he announced his ministry, I come to bring good news to the poor, to release those from captivity, to give sight to the blind. And so what it's saying is that the gospel uh, is all about seeing people receive Jesus, but it's also about making sure that they have what they need to live and thrive. So we have this big dream to see every school have a partner and the business communities involved in this. We've talked about this, the Chamber of Commerce, the Lions Club, the Rotary. They're all in on this. This whole community is saying, we have a dream to see students when they graduate from high school, first graduate from high school and be ready to thrive, Okay. This starts, for this program to start in 2020, it will take $60,000 up front to do that. We'll be hiring a full-time staff person. Imagine that. Not Providence, but this program will have a full-time staff person to liaison between the schools. There'll be trainings that have to take place, materials that have to take place. And I'm so excited about this. And, um, but for this to happen, we have to have that money up front. And I told at our, our meeting at Everyone's Wilson. I didn't say we were doing it, but I said we have the confidence that we'll have that $60,000 up front. All the churches will be involved in this as, as donors for years and years to come. But, but that startup money, I believe that we can get from our Christmas Eve offering and see this dream take place and, and spread across our county. Sound good? All right. Yeah, you can clap for that. <laughs> so... This is the way I think. Like I, we, you heard that song that we sang to start. I, I hear in the, um, in the echoes of that old hymn what we're talking about right now. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. That hymn was written by Charles Wesley in 1744. He said that he wrote it after seeing the plight of orphans in his community. Isn't that interesting? So a man, a Christian, who held the good news within him, seeing the condition of children in his community, said, we need Jesus to come. (laughs) Come, thou long-expected Jesus. From From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. So all that we're talking about here is we're saying, we need Jesus to come. Have you felt that this Christmas? It's like, we need Christmas, right? I saw you guys setting up your decorations before Thanksgiving. That's not, you shouldn't do that, okay? But we just let it go because I know the reason you were doing that is because you're like, we need Christmas. We need it this year. We need Jesus to come. We need things to change. We need light to shine in the darkness. We need Luke chapter two. That's, what, uh, that's where you find the Christmas story. That's like what Linus reads on Charlie Brown Christmas, Luke chapter two. 
Luke chapter 2 is the nativity scene, right? That's, that's Luke chapter 2. Holding the candle uh, on Christmas Eve, singing Silent Night, you're pretty much feeling Luke chapter 2. So everybody loves Luke chapter 2. We're going to give you more Luke chapter 2 than you can handle. But you have to start with Luke chapter 1 to really understand that. And so the people who would come on the Sunday where we light one candle, right, waiting, are going to get to hear about Luke chapter 1. This is how it starts. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about the Jesus story. Luke's saying, many people have written this up, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. You hear what Luke's saying? He's saying, our story, the story that we have from God was not found by one dude out in a box and he's revealing it to everyone else. No, this is a historical story that can be corroborated by eyewitness accounts. Luke's saying, I'm one of the ones who went and investigated it and I have something to share with you. That's what he says in the next verse, with this in mind. Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Many other people have. I'm doing it too. Most excellent Theophilus. That's who he's writing to. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Isn't that crazy? He's saying, I want you to have the the certainty of this story. So he's saying, I talked to people who were there. I talked to the people who talked to the people who were there. Uh, I've tested it, right? This is um, something that is time-tested, Luke's account. Uh, It's so specific that there would have been plenty of people who would have had an opportunity to say, that didn't happen there or then with that person in that place. The way he described it with such specificity doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for trickery or deception. It's a historical account that Luke's bringing to us that's been corroborated and now passed down for 2,000 of years that people would say, you know, holds this historical significance. Luke wants to tell us what happened with Jesus. That's the whole point. That's what the gospel is, good news about Jesus. But Luke, along with Matthew and Mark and John, the people who wrote the gospel stories, they all start in their first few paragraphs with a description not of Jesus, but of John, John the Baptist. And so we're going to get to hear uh, today, not Luke chapter 2, but Luke chapter 1, which is not the story of the birth of Jesus, but the story of the birth of John the Baptist. Who would care, right? You don't have a choice. (laughs) I'm giving it to you. This is how it starts. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. See how specific? There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. It's very specific. In the time of King Herod of Judea, real king, real time, real place, There was a priest named Zechariah. He tells us where he worked, even the division that he worked in, the name of his wife and the name of the family from which his wife comes from. Luke was setting up just uh, this, was setting up this precise historical dating. But it was also, we see, he was giving us clues to what was going on in the culture. So it's not just a precise historical dating. It's also this sort of political and spiritual understanding for those who would have lived among that time or heard about it from their grandparents and for those who do their homework. That's what we're doing today. What's really going on here? Telling us that this happened in the time of King Herod of Judea was not just a historical dating. It would have elicited feelings from those who would have remembered the time of King Herod. Why? Because the time of King Herod was a time of great trouble. Herod was a tyrant, cruel, vindictive, insecure, violent, It was said that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. His subjects detested him. 
They lived in fear. Some of you will remember Herod as the one who put to death every male child under the age of two when Jesus was born. Pastor Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, would mean in the darkest and most evil days one could remember. So when we get that line in the, in the time of King Herod, the people who'd been around would say, oh, we remember that time. It was the darkest time that we ever knew. The first and second century people hearing this, they would begin to remember, oh, it was so terrible. It was so difficult. But it's not just this sort of political dating with the king. We're also getting a clue into something that the spiritual and religious people of that time also would have thought about in the time of King Herod, uh, the king of Judea. Because this time in the Jewish faith and the people of God was a time when they thought God had gone silent. 400 years, they said, we have not heard from God. Can you imagine? 400 years, there's been no new prophecy, no prophetic word, no new holy scrolls, nothing. We haven't heard from God in all of this time. The last uh, um, word that they had was from a guy named Malachi which was about 430 years before in the time of King Herod of Judea. 430 years they'd been waiting. Malachi was the last one to speak. And so they'd been waiting like a family waits. And I say like a family because I think Luke was being careful to situate this story and this waiting within the family. As a pastor, I've learned that one of the most underrated but important things that a family does is they wait together. Most of the, the most important waiting in our lives happens within the family. We're waiting for a son to come home from war. We're waiting for a daughter to get out of rehab. We're waiting for a baby. We're waiting by the bedside of a matriarch. You know, this waiting that we do is, is, is situated within the family, and that's what the family of God was doing, waiting for 400 years. The reason I think Luke was being careful to do that is because he tells us so carefully about Zechariah and Elizabeth and their family. Even in their names, we get a hint of this waiting family of God. Here's what their names mean. Zechariah's name means the Lord is remembered, or just simply, the Lord remembers, right? 400 years, they haven't heard from God. Elizabeth's name means my God is an oath. Uh, Another way of saying that would be God keeps his promises. So uh, I imagine, you know, Uh, in my pretend world, when Zachariah wakes up in the morning and he says, hey, Elizabeth, do you want me to fix you a cup of coffee? He's actually saying, hey, God keeps his promises. You want a cup of coffee? And she responds, Zachariah, you know I want a cup of coffee, you silly old man, or whatever she says. And, um, but what she's really saying is, the Lord remembers us. Yeah, I want another, I want a cup of coffee. Every time they talk to each other, they're saying the Lord remembers us and God keeps his promises. Every every time they speak, God keeps his promises, the Lord remembers us, that they are saying we actually aren't forgotten, which is really interesting because everything about Zachariah and Elizabeth's life to us sounds like they were precisely the ones who'd been forgotten. We're told that they were were old, beyond the age of childbearing. There's this, this part of this that they had desired to have children and they had never been able to do it. 400 years, the people of God have been waiting, and it's this couple that we're told about. They feel forgotten, but every day they say, we're not forgotten. So the time of Herod, politically, a dark time. The time of Herod in the church, a silent time. And so what does Zechariah do? This is what matters to your life. What do you do when you're in the darkest time? What do you do when, when God seems silent? Well, you know what Zechariah did? He got up every morning and went to work. He stayed faithful. That's their legacy, that they were righteous and blameless without fault 
which doesn't mean that they did everything perfectly, but it means they sought to be faithful even in a time when it seemed they had been forgotten. What did Zechariah do? He got up every day and went to work, and he was faithful. And so here's the story. It says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by a lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Remember that, okay? Remember that when Zechariah went into the temple to do this holy thing, all the people were outside praying. What do you, th- you know what they were praying for? For God to show up, for God to say something, for God to send his Messiah. They've been waiting for so long. There were an estimated 20,000 priests in that time. Zechariah was one of them and an old one, but he was chosen by lot to go and do this very special uh, task, sort of like what Wyatt did, only one person getting to do it gets to go in, and he was going to burn incense, which symbolized the prayers of the people going up to God. Probably in Zachariah's career as a priest, he got to do this one time, and this was it. And so he goes in, and it says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zachariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear, which is the appropriate response if you go into church, and it's dark, and there's an angel standing there, okay? So everything's good so far. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. What I notice in this one simple verse are the names. So there's an angel. He's terrified. The angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. The Lord remembers. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, God keeps his promises, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And the name John just simply means the Lord is gracious. That the Lord, uh, the, the Lord is, is good. The Lord gives us that thing that we can't, you know, that we can't give on our own. This is what the angel goes on to say about the baby, okay? John is gonna be born. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And there's a lot that we can read into that and talk about it. All I would want you to see today is this baby is going to be something else. Okay? And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord our God. In this whisper of the angel is this hint that the baby is not just going to be for the ones who are in the family right now, but those who are, who are outside and who are scattered. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. No, that's a lot, guys. But what would have been seen in this verse or heard in this verse by Zechariah are these echoes of an ancient text that he would have been familiar with. This, this he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Zechariah would have thought, I've heard that before. I've heard something like that before. I think in his old priest heart, he would have remembered, that sounds just like something that was written 430 years before now. It sounds like, guys, the last verse of the last book in our Old Testament, the last words before God went silent are found in Malachi chapter four. I'll read them to you. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So before the Lord comes, the prophet Elijah is gonna come. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land 
with total destruction. It's an exact echo, right, of what, what the angel is saying to Zechariah in the temple. It sounds just like Malachi, the last verse, the last thing that we've got. You see what's happening? God is speaking again. God is showing up again. God is, is using Malachi to announce that the wait is over. And Zechariah would have known this, right? Well, here's what Zechariah says. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And then he throws his wife under the bus too. And my wife, she's an old lady too. After the angel has basically just done ninja work on the scriptures, connecting Malachi chapter four, buried in a scroll, to what's happening in Zechariah's life and his job that day in the temple. Zechariah is asking the glowing angel at the table, uh, how can I be sure I'll repeat that. There's an angel standing in the temple, and Zechariah is saying, can you give me something so I can be sure? And here's the angel's response. He says, I'm Gabriel. We imagine it hitting Zechariah's heart like an arrow. Gabriel, the most famous archangel of their holy scriptures. The one who showed up to Daniel? and told him about how the holy sanctuary should be taken care of? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. Gabriel is now a good news gospel proclaimer coming to Zechariah just where he is. This is the moment Zechariah would have wanted to say, oh, beg your pardon, Gabriel. I didn't realize that was you. But Gabriel does not allow him to respond. He says, and now you'll be silent and not be able to speak until the day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. And meanwhile, so and meanwhile, the people are waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Have you ever had the experience of a preacher just preaching too long, you know. And he doesn't even realize all these people are sitting here. They're alive. It's actually a live group of people. They're waiting. What do you do? It, it would be awkward just to leave, right? So you just kind of hang around, hoping that he'll realize that they're waiting. The people of God were waiting outside of the temple. What is Zechariah doing in there? And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. So the people are waiting and the one who's supposed to speak for God can't speak. So now Zechariah is this living picture of 400 years of silence, the messenger of God who can't talk. Crazy. But guess what, guys? Elizabeth is pregnant and it's a baby boy. She carries him for nine months. He's born the whole time. Zechariah is doing sign language. He can't speak. Eight days after the birth of the boy, it's the day that, that, that you're supposed to give a Hebrew boy his name in the temple by the father, the father, and Zechariah won't speak. And so they say, this is in the script, they say, we're just going to call him Zechariah, I guess. So here he is. The baby's going to be Zechariah Jr., but Zechariah, in that moment, takes a tablet, and he writes, his name is John. And Zechariah's tongue is loosed. 
He has nine months of pent-up praise within him, and he begins to sing a song that becomes one of the most famous songs that Christians have sung. It's called the Canticle of Zechariah. And, and he sings out this praise. Why? You know, why did the gospel writers tell us about John the Baptist, this baby? Because he would be the one, we are told, that would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist would break the silence and say, God has not given up on us. God has not forgotten us. The Messiah is coming. And here's where John's message was different. And he's coming soon. So you better be ready. Why do we need Luke chapter 1? Why not just line us in the blanket? Why not start with the baby and the manger and the shepherds? Why Luke 1 when what we need is baby Jesus? That's true, right? Why, do, why Luke 1? Why? The reason is we actually need baby John first. And I'm going to tell you why. And some of y'all can take a deep breath. You're like, he hasn't filled in any blanks on the, on the paper. I know. I'm going to do them all quickly now. They're all coming quick. I promise. I wouldn't, I'm a man of my, I promise they're quick. So why do we need John the Baptist? He teaches us when we feel forgotten, we say we're not forgotten. That's what Zachariah and Elizabeth teach us. Why do we care about Zachariah and Elizabeth? That's our family. They're our family. And so when we feel forgotten, we say we're not forgotten. When? Every day. Every day we get up and go to work and say, we're not forgotten. God will keep his promises. The Lord remembers. Why do we need John the Baptist? Why do we need Zechariah and Elizabeth? Because in the darkest times, God is getting ready to turn on the lights. That's a quote from Pastor Alistair Begg. I love it. The darkest moment is when the light is closest. In the darkest times, God's getting ready to turn on the lights. Why do we need Luke chapter one? It teaches us that in the quiet times, when it seems God has gone silent, God is getting ready to speak. I promise you. When it seems God has got silent, God is getting ready to speak. And then this last one, just to ponder for a moment, is in, the, is in this um, Luke chapter one, kind of Zachariah and Elizabeth stuff, we see that we all will be given a special assignment for the waiting time. Zachariah thought every, that life had passed him by and God gave him a special assignment. The reason we do four weeks here, Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, is because we need to see in the story ourselves and that we are given a special assignment in the waiting time. The reason that's significant, guys, is I know right now your family's waiting for something. You're waiting for somebody to get through rehab. You're, you're waiting for a baby. You're waiting by, by a bedside with somebody. And so this is the time that we look for the special assignment. We want to throw in the towel, but instead we need to look for what God's calling us to. Ask for it. If you want to be bold this week, ask for it. Say, God, what's my special assignment? Seems like the darkest time I've ever been in. What's my special assignment? I haven't heard you speak in so long, right? See what happens. John the Baptist is the voice who breaks the silence. And what he says is, Jesus is coming. So that's where we're at right now. Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. So hear these words from that hymn again, okay? Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Let us pray. God, thank you for situating us in this great story. We wait for Jesus, we wait together like a family waits. And so we do what we do every week, which is come to the table, a table set with bread and juice. This bread is Christ's body broken for us. 
We believe the cup, his blood shed for us. And so, God, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on the gifts of bread and juice, that they may be for us the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. So make us one, God, one with Christ and one in unity all together so that we can live for you and share your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.